Welcome to On the Ballot with Ballotpedia, where we take a closer look at the top political stories of the day. Ballotpedia connects people to politics by providing neutral, nonpartisan, and reliable information on our government, how it works, and where it's headed. I'm Corey Ucolito here for Victoria Rose. Thanks for being with us. Today, we're joined by Rob Oldham, who is a Princeton University PhD student. If you're a regular listener, you've probably heard us have a dozen different academics come on and chat about their expertise. But Rob here is the first academic in training. He's also a former Ballotpedia employee. So we figured we'd make an exception for him since uh, he does have that history with Ballotpedia. Before starting grad school, Rob worked on what we call our marquee team with myself and helped us produce a huge historical report on wave elections that occurred in the 100 years between 1918 and 2016 ahead of the 2018 midterms during the Trump presidency. And today he's pursuing his doctorate at Princeton University, studying policymaking in Congress and state legislatures. Rob, thanks for being here. Yeah, great. Thank you very much for uh, having me on, Corey. Great to be back in the Ballotpedia sphere. It's been a been a few years. Yeah. So I mentioned it before, you're pursuing your doctorate at Princeton. Tell us a little bit about uh, what you've been up to since you left Ballotpedia. Yeah, sure. So um, this is the fifth year of my doctorate program. And yeah, I think it maybe at one point in the course of people getting PhDs, all you did was work on your dissertation. But for a modern uh, graduate student, it means you're working in your dissertation plus about, you know, maybe five other projects, a couple of which you have hopes of getting published while you're in graduate school. So, um, you know, so since I really my second year, I've been working on a variety of research projects that are intended to be turned into journal articles. And then the last year I've been working on my dissertation. I can give a kind of a brief sense of what the dissertation is about. And then we can talk more about some of the individual papers, too, if, if you want. Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll get to all that. Let's start back with your time at Ballopedia, though, um, and revisit revisit our time together, and then we'll progress up to what you're working on now. I wanted to talk about um, two big projects that you worked on here at Ballopedia. The first I mentioned, which was the Wave Elections Report. Uh, we produced that ahead of the 2018 midterms, which were the first midterms under President Trump. Can you tell us what you remember about that research, what it was looking at, and what we found? Yeah. So we were interested in defining what a wave was. I think yeah, at least if you're really plugged into the kind of political news cycle, you hear this this word get thrown around a lot, like blue wave, red wave. You know, political actors use that, but you also hear commentators and pundits will say that too. So I think what we were trying to do is just give readers more historical context for you know, interpreting a claim like that and being able to say like this is how big what's ever about to happen in 2018 is relative to what had happened in the past. And so basically what we did is we looked at all House elections, Senate elections, uh, gubernatorial elections, and state legislative elections going back 100 years. So I think uh, yeah, I think we either started in 1916 or 1918, you know, all the way up to the 2016 elections so that we could look at how many seats the president's party had lost in uh, midterm elections or in presidential elections. That would kind of give us a benchmark for what 2018 was going to tell us. Uh, you know, basically what we ended up uh, you know, seeing in 2018 was we saw a obviously a significant kind of backlash against uh, Trump and the Republican Party, but it wasn't really one of the, I think it might have been 11th out of, you know, the top, like, you know, worst elections for a president's party. So it was just outside of the threshold that we would have considered to be a wave, which was the top 10. Um, and then the Senate elections you actually saw go the other way, you know, mainly a function of the map uh, that we had in 2018, where there were a lot of uh, red state Democrats that were up in you know, states that it went pretty heavily for Trump and 2016 and then again in 2020 and and there you, know, you saw actually Democrats lost a fair number of seats and it wasn't you know it wasn't in the uh, in the wave category there but it was still a uh, kind of a split verdict in, uh, in terms of how we had been defining it yeah that was uh, an interesting and helpful project and we've been able to evaluate subsequent midterms through that lens 
as well. So that, yeah, I remember that. That was a fun project. Another one that I remember that you worked on was the storyline about Texas state legislative primaries in 2018, I guess, um, around a debate between supporters of Speaker Joe Strauss and the House Freedom Caucus. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about, about that work, whatever you do remember of it, because I know there's some intrigue now in Texas after the impeachment of Ken Paxton, and there may be some primaries on the Republican side. So it's interesting to look back at what's happened in the recent past. Yeah, I would, I would expect there to be some primaries on the Republican side, given, um, you know, that we know that this, uh, you know, these different groups have a ton of money, I'm, you know, going back at least to 2018. So I'm sure the, it looks at least uh, pretty similar then to what it does today. If anyone ever goes and finds that project on Ballotpedia's website, I promise you, you can lose a day or two in looking at all the information that we tried to turn up on the, um, you know, kind of the conflict between, uh, like Corey said, the, the supporters of Speaker Strauss, uh, more or less moderate Republicans, or at least kind of Republicans that were aligned with the uh, the business community, and then the House Freedom Caucus was just a more populist Republican, you know, similar to the uh, House Freedom Caucus and uh, Congress, you know, supporters of Trump. Uh, yeah, basically, what was happening in, in the uh, the conflict at that point was Strauss. You know, was kind of known as a guy who was not really trying to ruffle too many feathers. He wanted to keep the business community happy. So, for example, he um, he didn't bring a, a bathroom bill onto the floor of the house. Um, he didn't he didn't think that that would be good for the business climate in Texas, among uh, a few other bills, including some related to property taxes and employee regulations. And so, um, yeah, the, the Freedom Caucus, they wanted to get rid of as many Strauss supporters as they could so that they could uh, you know, have more influence on the next speaker's election. Strauss actually announced his, his resignation before the election even happened. So you know, that wasn't even uh, you know, a question of whether he would be speaker again, but whether you would see someone like Strauss that would uh, rise to the speakership or whether you would see someone who was uh, you know, a little bit more like the Freedom Caucus. Uh, it, again, you know, kind of like the other story of the 2018 election, it was it was a split verdict. Yet the Strauss supporters won some elections, the, the Freedom Caucus won some elections. They were, I think they were a little bit more successful in the Senate than they were in the House because they also financed some candidates there. And then from what I understand, the Speaker basically aligned with the Strauss camp, you know, probably not as brazen as he was and kind of defying that flank of the Republican Party, but more or less still a, a business community guy. For Ken Paxton, he wasn't really an issue in that election specifically. But I think you see kind of similar, you know, factional lines that were split around Paxton, uh, as you saw in the, in the Strauss versus Freedom Caucus, where you, know, you have like the more populous wing of the party supports Paxton, while you have this more business-oriented part of the party that's trying to uh, impeach him. The most recent uh, battle between these two uh, two sides. So those are two of the biggest things that you worked on. Tell us about uh, what made you want to start down the path of an academic. What made you want to sadly leave Ballotpedia and, and head to Princeton? Yeah, well, I wouldn't say I wanted to leave Ballotpedia. You know, I just that was a, that was that was just an unfortunate uh, you know, side consequence of me trying to kind of pursue a, a graduate, you know, graduate degree in political science, which uh, I had always wanted to do. Um, I think I, maybe after getting here, or maybe I realized that uh, why what I wanted to do is you know be like a like one of the teachers that inspired me when I was in a, when I was an undergrad. You know, I had some some excellent teachers, including uh, Charles Bullock at uh, the University of Georgia. He's an expert in Southern politics and. Yeah, his teaching style and his ability to engage with students, that always just really appealed to me and also connected me to things like internships, to, you know, ability to explore the political world and kind of start to develop my thinking around it. Yeah, that made me think I wanted to do that for, uh, you know, help, help other students do that too. Um, I also had some some interesting research opportunities when I was in college with a professor named uh, Tony Madonna. He had us sit around and basically read the congressional record to help with some of his research on congressional amend- amendments and roll calls. And so when I was doing that, uh, you know, reading, you know, what Congress was talking about, you know, as far back as World War II, it 
had me thinking that I literally don't think that there's another job that I could just sit around and read this document and someone would actually, you know, pay me money or subsidize my lifestyle to do this. So I thought I should, might as well go try to become a become an academic because they get paid to kind of do weird things, even if no one else is, you know, super interested in them. So um, so yeah, that was that was I think the inspiration was just you know coming off of those mentors and kind of figures in my life as a bit younger. Now coming to grad school, it's you know it's obviously it's a little bit more focused around research, you know, less about teaching, but I still um, like to carry that part of a. Uh, in my experience with me and trying to you know be a quality instructor as a to Princeton undergrads and then to other groups. Yeah, that's great. It sounds like a fantastic fit and you're doing really well. So let's talk about your work in grad school. So your dissertation, um, as I understand, it's about congressional policymaking and how that functions during crisis moments uh, versus how Congress acts during moments of what you call politics as usual. What made you want to explore this this question before we get to the findings and how you conducted the research? Yeah. So, I mean, you might remember, but, you know, when I started um, grad school, there was something that happened in the world. Um, it was called the COVID-19 pandemic. If, it, I don't know if you remember that, Corey, but that would not really. <laughs> that was a huge part of my early grad school experience. I went to classes for, you know, the first semester and then a few weeks into the second semester. And then after that, I you know didn't attend an in-person class for a year and a half. It really, you know, just it's a dramatic shock to you know my life, but then of course you know Americans and people all over the world were dealing with this thing that no one saw coming, and no one really knew how to make sense of it or fit it into our existing frameworks, at least you know at least for a while. And so, uh, what I, what interested me about that was uh, you know at least from you know, I was interested in legislatures and studying Congress and um, the amount of money that Congress was appropriating at the, the beginning of the crisis. This was a kind of unusual time in American politics, but I don't think people all often appreciate how unusual it was. Um, the amount of money that was spent in early 2020 was astronomical. You know, so some of our, our figures have it being more than Congress spent on the New Deal, more than Congress spent on you know, the entirety of the 2009 recession, even when you combine the New Deal 2009 recession. It wasn't as much as what they spent on COVID. So this is, you know, just, uh, and, and, you know it, again, it, it's happening in this environment that, um, you know, at least is from a political science standpoint, it's like, you know, we're more polarized, we're more partisan. Now Trump's president, Trump just got impeached. Like, this is not, you know, great conditions for lawmaking. Like Congress was able to come together during COVID and they were able to um, to do this massive spending bill. And so I was interested in kind of how members, um, you know, were able to make this decision, you know, I guess from the Republican standpoint, how you're able to spend trillions of dollars on, on these different uh, priorities that, you know, previously weren't really priorities before the virus came onto the scene. And then from a Democratic standpoint, you know, how, how are you able to work with Trump and, you know, this guy that you're trying to defeat in the upcoming election? How can you, you know, make that up? Uh, you know, actually able to do that on like an interpersonal relationship level. And so that kind of was the start of the project. It later expanded into a more data-driven project where I was looking at kind of similar type events going back 40 years. But yeah, it's been a, you know, a timely project, I guess, which makes it feel more more relevant to the, uh, the experiences I've, I've had in recent years too. Everyone has. So what'd you find? What drives the more unique policymaking in those crisis moments? Did you learn anything from particular crises that you examined? So what I did is I went to Capitol Hill and I talked to people who were involved in COVID, but also the financial crisis and 9-11. So, you, you know, you saw similar dynamics in each crisis, this massive shock that comes onto the scene. And then pretty quickly, you know, bipartisan coalescence around big policy solutions that no one was talking about. No one would have probably thought possible before. Were these were these members you were talking to staff with combination? It was primarily um, high ranking staff. I talked to talked to one member, but it was you know, normally position of like chief of staff, staff director, legislative director. What, what similarities did you find between some of those crises? 
So the two big uh, dynamics that I point to in the uh, in at least the first chapter of the dissertation was when you in, in introduce uncertainty into the environment. You know, members they kind of they, they base a lot of their actions on what's worked in the past. So, for example, if you're thinking about like the the vote to impeach Trump, and you're thinking about that from a Republican standpoint, you might think of it as like, oh yeah, everything I've done so far is basically been in line with what the voters in my party wanted. You know, what what my primary electorate wanted, and this has worked out pretty well for me so far. So. I want to continue being an elected official or having um, you know, policy influence in this area, continue to be a committee chair, whatever that member's goals are. Sticking to that kind of politics as usual logic of you know, supporting my party, standing by the president, like that, that makes sense. But when you have something like COVID that no one, no one was expecting to, to come onto the scene, no one really knows how to fit it into your frameworks, that can really, I think, throw off that logic. And this is, you know, I, call, I call this the problem solving logic. So it shifts from you know what you do normally into things that you don't norm- do normally. I guess and you know the modern Congress that that means working across the line. That means um, negotiating with members of the other party, supporting you know the case of Republicans, very you know large amounts of spending. Yeah, it just involves a kind of a departure from you know, the normal logic that we see in members. And then I think kind of the second dynamic you see stuff going on is you see the environment. Members are always receiving signals from their environment, like you know you talk to constituents and they you know tell you to do something talk to fellow members and they tell you to uh, do something else. You talk to interest groups, they tell you something else. But in moments of crisis, what I was seeing is that all the messages become very similar. So you no longer have conflicts between these different uh, messengers. And they're all saying the same thing, which is that you have to do something. This is a really intuitive comment or kind of a phrase that you remember for people on Capitol Hill. You'll say, what about the do something? And they're like, oh, the do something. They kind of immediately know what you're talking about. The do something, you know, we're supposed to do something inaction is no longer acceptable. Everyone kind of becomes, you know, coalesced behind this idea that something has to change. And I think, you know, often it's kind of vague and unclear and no one really knows what they want to be done. They just know the uh, status quo isn't working. You know, at least they're not happy with the status quo and they want to see government policy change in in, uh, some form or fashion. Again, not maybe not specific, maybe in a crisis, you know, that um, you you want protection from your government. You want them to do something to protect you from the bad thing. But, uh, but it becomes overwhelming and it's difficult for members to ignore. I don't, I don't know if you looked at this, but in those moments, who ends up shaping what the something is, if that, if that makes any sense? No, that's a, that's a great question. So I think, you know, you, you obviously, if you, you follow these kind of negotiations a lot, you see a lot of attention on the leaders and you see, um, you know, kind of this narrative forms that the leaders are going into these um, behind the scenes negotiations and they're deciding what what's going to happen. And then they, they kind of throw it out to members members just kind of have to swallow it. And I think, uh, you know, there's something to that that dynamic. I think it's kind of overblown, though. What I was actually finding was that, um, you know, part of the reason the leaders are empowered to do this in these moments is because members want them to, you know, at least most members. There's kind of a, you know, when there is this kind of consensus behind action, then most members are fine with delegating to leaders. And, you know, it's kind of an efficiency mechanism to uh, to make Congress work faster. But, uh, but I didn't really, I, I wasn't really saying that, that members were being cut out or that all the details were coming from the leader's office. You, I think um, a lot of policy experts really, you know, from both parties, regardless of the kind of the status of, you know, whether government's unified or divided, they uh, can still have influence on what the uh, specifics of the policies look like. You have, you know, administration officials. So in the case of COVID, you had Steve Mnuchin, Secretary of Treasury. He was, he was a pretty influential actor and that these people are all, you know, kind of helping facilitate the policy negotiation and then what the leaders are really doing is they're they're trying to make it politically palatable so during the financial crisis you have like mitch mcconnell and harry Reid, but they weren't really negotiating the specifics of the uh, the policy they were more trying to find ways for their members to be able to swallow the policy and be able to get it to justify it to their constituents 
So it was a much more, I think, um, symbiotic process. And I think, you know, you often see, you often see it as more hierarchical and these people are doing that, even though they don't want to because someone else is forcing them to. But I was, I was seeing a lot more cooperation among actors than I think is typically emphasized. Yeah, it's a really, really interesting paper. Let's move on to some other things that you've been working on. I understand you've got a paper under review on news coverage related to COVID and how narratives about conflict were more common than they were about cooperation and how this affected legislation. So obviously this, you know, this COVID story and, and conflict has been a big part of a big running thread in what you're working on. So tell me about that paper. Yeah, absolutely. So um, this paper was, it's kind of following up on this really long, long standing observation about uh, media coverage of Congress, which is that it's very negative. And then, you know, this is a, you know, you mostly see the, uh, the coverage is about how Congress is fighting about something, not about how they're coming to policy solutions. And so I uh, kind of, you know, my co-authors and I, I think one of the reasons we're interested in this is, you know, public approval of Congress is very low. But when you really dig into the numbers, you see that public approval is much lower the more people know about Congress. So people that are more interested in the news and the and people who are you know, more highly educated, people who we might expect to be following politics a little bit more closely, they dislike Congress even more than the people who aren't paying attention, couldn't tell you who the Speaker of the House was. And so one of the reasons we thought this might uh, be the case is it's the media coverage they're, they're reading is basically inundated with you know conflict stories and that you're you're not really seeing the same amount of coverage uh, for, um, for, for, you know, for Congress having policy breakthroughs. So we looked at COVID because COVID, you know, as I was kind of describing earlier, uh, at least, you know, in our view was, 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 you know, call, call whatever the policy, you know, say whatever better you want. Maybe you don't think that spending, you know, trillions of dollars was the best, the best response to the virus. At the very least, it was not an example of congressional gridlock. Congress, you know, without a doubt did something and it was a big thing that they did good or bad. And so we thought that this was, kind of a, a pretty big counterpoint against these, you know, narratives of conflict. So, you know, if there's any case where you expect to see conflict uh, or coverage of Congress to be a little less conflict oriented or to be, you know, more about policy achievement, then it should have been COVID, particularly, you know, in 2020, when you have all the examples of Congress, you know, again and again and again, coming together on these massive appropriations bills, which, uh, by the way, were almost all bipartisan until at, at the American Rescue Plan in uh, 2021, that was a partisan bill. But everything before that was nearly unanimous. And so um, we looked at media coverage of those legislative efforts in 2020. And basically, we were finding that conflict was still dominating. So you weren't really seeing the successes that Congress was having. You weren't seeing those emphasized. You were still seeing the conflict being overemphasized. So we you know, constructed an explanation for this. You know, There's kind of the classic explanations, the economic incentives of media organizations to highlight conflict because you know, readers find it more interesting and entertaining to read about people fighting than they do about uh, policy success. That's part of the answer. Part of the answer is kind of the, the norms of journalism, which tends to highlight you know, both sides. So you want to have always a counterpoint to whatever point you make. You, you always have to have the opposing side. So norms are also playing a role. But then kind of the third thing that we found that, um, you know, we don't we don't think has been emphasized as much as it's really just the volume and the amount of coverage that media organizations are giving to Congress. So it's, it's the fact that they cover it on a beat structure. You know, if you're going to station someone at Congress and expect them to um, turn out a story every day or every week or something like that, you're almost inevitably going to cover conflict because, you know, regardless of how many policy breakthroughs it's happening, it's still a legislative institution. You know, it's a deliberative assembly. People in the institution don't agree with each other. So you do get a lot of conflict. It's not, you know, it's not like they're making up this conflict. They're covering it. I think we would just argue that the amount to which um, it's being covered, I think, really ends up being very disproportionate to the successes of that. So even during something like COVID, 
For example, we found that um, people are still most likely to read articles about failed bills, you know, conflict articles about bills that never even pass than they are to read about something like the CARES Act, which was the $2 trillion bill that passed at the beginning of 2020. So, uh, you know, there's both the incentives of the media organization, and then there's also the structure of the coverage. Yeah, I guess one other interesting thing is the finding that coverage of conflicts continues in a moment of congressional unity and, and action, I guess, doesn't affect Congress's ability to act in that same world of conflict, right? They're still getting things done despite the negative coverage of what's going on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Congress, I, that's that's not a, um, we really look at it in the paper, but but it, but it is, you know, it is an interesting observation nevertheless that, uh, you know, Congress appears to have incentives to, to take action, I guess, beyond which, you know, they think is, is going to be covered favorably by the media. You know, I guess, you know, that, that kind of harkens back to my other project, you know, why members of Congress take action. You know, I think, I think, and I think a lot of that is just the uncertainty and the fear of the unknown, that if you don't do something, that as a, even if people don't appreciate it when you do do something, it's still better than facing the unknown, the fear of what happens if you do nothing you know, five months down the road. Who knows what kind of state the country or the economy will be in. Yeah. Well, what was the process for that research? I mean, were you guys like actually just tallying up news clippings and kind of categorizing them? How'd that work? Yeah, good question. It was, a, uh, it was actually one of the more in-depth content analysis projects I've ever been involved in. We downloaded about 400 articles, all from the major major news organizations, uh, newspapers specifically. We also did some TV coverage, um, which kind of cuts against our structure argument, which is why we emphasize that the TV coverage actually does just cover the big events. They don't they don't have these kind of constant conflict models. But anyhow, so what we did was uh, we found um, about 400 uh, news articles from like the New York Times, Washington Post, USA Today, Wall Street Journal. And we coded them paragraph by paragraph to see whether the uh, the content of the paragraph was about conflict. And so that allowed us to kind of see what was going on in the article overall, like, you know, how many paragraphs in the article were devoted to conflict versus um, Congress achieving some kind of action. And then it also kind of allowed us to do um, some other analysis um, where we saw where reporters were, or editors were actually placing the information within the article. So, for example, we found if an article talked about both conflict and action, it was far more likely to put the conflict paragraphs towards the top of the article and uh, less likely the action coverage was being kind of pushed down in the article. You saw that, uh, you know, across articles. So that kind of gives you a sense of what their reporters or at least their editors are trying to prioritize of what they think, you know, should be at the, the top of the news article. The thing that's most likely to catch the eye of the reader. If we're kind of thinking about the inverted pyramid of news coverage, you know, the idea that people really only read the first few paragraphs and then the rest is kind of extraneous information. Yeah. I mean, going, going back to what you said earlier about why you wanted to be uh, an academic, that is exactly one of those things that you're in the only place in the world where someone will actually <laughs> someone will actually pay you a little bit of money to just to sift through newspaper clippings like that. I know. I really hope I never have to get a real job again, I guess, at least. In the- <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Tell us a little bit about what you're working on now. I understand you've got a paper in progress about what a like multi-party system would look like in Congress. Yeah, so this is a this is a project with um, Lee Drutman at New America. If you're kind of listening to political reform circles, at least you know for for a long time, people have talked about introducing proportional representation into how we elect members of the House. You could actually do this without having to change the Constitution. There's um, there's just a, a law, you know, there's a federal law that basically requires that we use single member districts. And so that that law could theoretically at least be amended and require that instead of using single member districts, states would have to use multi-member districts to elect their members. And, um, uh, you know, I, we would argue at least that those those multi-member districts should be proportionally elected. And once you did that, then um, you basically get rid of the problem of redistricting or gerrymandering, you know, this topic that you know, kind of fills reams and reams of you know, news coverage and academic journal articles, conversations people have about politics. If you do proportionally 
proportional representation, you essentially can eliminate that issue from American politics. So, you know, we find that to at least you know, be a plausibly attractive idea. And, you know, there's also other potential benefits it could have, like, um, you know, for example, lessening the us versus them dynamics that you see in the in a uh, two-party system where people, you know, don't feel that you know, they always have to, you know, vote for a Republican or Democrat because of proportional systems. Uh, usually, you have third or fourth parties that emerge. Yeah, go, go ahead and actually just like briefly define that uh, for everybody. How would proportional representation with multi-member districts actually work in terms of you know stepping into the ballot box? Yeah, yeah. So um, I'll say it could work differently depending on what your uh, what you know what what the specific uh, rules are. Well, she is. I'll use kind of a stylized example. So if you could theoretically be exist in a district in, say, Georgia, and that district has uh, seven members of Congress that it sends. And so you as a voter might walk in, into the ballot box and, um, for example, you'd see different parties in front of you. So you might see Republicans, Democrats, maybe you'd see the uh, Justice Democrats Party, the MAGA Party. You might see four or five different parties. And in at least one, one example of a ballot structure, which we'd call a closed list party system, you could pick just the party that you favored. Um, let's say you pick the the Republicans, and so after everyone votes, the uh, the ballot counters they'll look at uh, how many votes the Republicans received, and if let's just say Republicans received about forty percent of the votes, then that would probably translate to them getting uh, you know three out of seven seats, uh, depending on how exactly the allocation formula worked. And so what you, can, what you can see is that if you have multiple parties that actually have a chance of winning, uh, then you, people might not feel as you know forced to vote for d- Democrats or Republicans. They might feel better about voting for you know say the Libertarians, the Greens, the MAGA Party, the social, the Justice Democrats Party, something like that, because it becomes less zero sum. It's not because you don't elect a Republican that means you have a Democrat, and yeah, you're more it's more equal division of, of the pie. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So. When, when can we expect anything on that paper? Any hard timelines or is that still to be determined? I think it'll come out early next year. And, and to, to clarify, so that proportional representation is a system that you, you see that yeah, this is a reform. They, they use it in most other countries. You know, it's, it, that, that's a pretty common reform proposal. What our paper specifically is going to focus on is how that would translate into governance and Congress. So that's kind of the big question because a lot most other systems that have proportional representation, they have parliamentary systems. So like Germany, for example, they elect their legislature and then their legislature elects a, um, a chancellor and the chancellor is the head of government and um, they, they appoint ministers often from in the legislature. So that's what you know, the UK does. That's what, what a lot of countries in Europe do as a parliamentary system. The US has a presidential system. And so it's a little bit, um, you know, it would work a little, it would work a little bit different. You actually, the only examples you really see of multi-party presidential systems are uh, often in Latin America. Uh, there's a few other examples too, like such as Indonesia. Um, Cyprus, but it's it's a less common arrangement to see is pres- a presidential system where you both elect a president, and then you also have multiple parties. And so our paper is trying to think about um, under what conditions basically was is this reform? What it, would it be likely to work? And then um, what are some other you know kind of complementary reforms that we could propose alongside it to increase the chances you know, that that it would work? For example, uh, one thing that uh, presidents in Latin America t- tend to be able to do is they can appoint their own cabinets. They don't have to have them confirmed by the Senate, which is something you have to do in the U.S. So that's something that we're thinking about uh, for, for our proposal is how, how, we, how could we give the, the presidents more power over the appointment of their cabinet? Because um, you know, they, it's often useful in a multi-party system to divide the cabinet seats among the different parties in your coalition that can you know create you know, bargain it can make bargaining and negotiation easier for the president when they're trying to get their bills passed and get their program passed and so that you know this is just one example of things that uh you know, the u.s might want to consider adopting or at least you know somehow changing the norms around if we're going to uh 
if we, if we wanted to see a multi-party system um, actually succeed and not lead to you know further fragmentation, gridlock, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's that's really really interesting. We'll we'll definitely look forward to that. So yeah, just to get to the end here, start to wrap things up. What, what's next for you? You've got this paper in the works, but uh, when do you graduate? What's uh, coming up next in life? Yeah, I mean, uh, we'll, we'll say it kind of remains to be seen. I'll uh, I'll graduate in uh, either the spring of 2024 or the spring of 2025. You know, there's a jobs in academia that are out there that, uh, you know, I think it's been increasingly common for graduate students to, to go other paths. I think graduate students that are smarter than I am, they become expert programmers and they go work for like a tech company or something like that. Although that's that's been, you know, less of an option in recent years as those jobs have kind of dried up a little bit. But, you know, I'm clearly interested in research. Uh, I'm interested in teaching. I'm interested in, uh, you know, kind of jobs kind of in the think tank communities, whether that's in the D.C. area, maybe the Atlanta area, which is where me and my wife Molly are from originally. So um, I could I could see a variety of pathways. I'm not a, I'm not necessarily staking my claim to any to any single one. We'll just we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it'll work out. And anybody any prospective employers listening, um, Rob is wonderful. Um, obviously <laughs> very smart and uh, great to work with. So take that for what it's worth. Well, Rob, thanks so much for your time. It's been really nice catching up. Really fascinating hearing about your work, what you're working on, and. I know you stay in touch with a lot of folks here at Ballotpedia. And while uh, we miss you, we're definitely excited to see everything you've been up to. Yeah, thanks a lot, Corey. It's great, great getting to talk to you again. And also, you know, of course, I've continued to be a fan of Ballotpedia over the last few years. And I'm very happy to see that the uh, the podcast finally came together and that y'all have been getting great guests, um, even if you have to you know, fill in with some not great, so great ones like me every once in a while. So uh, say, I look forward to continued episodes, though, and to uh, all the great work that y'all are doing. And so for listeners, you can learn more about Rob's work at the link in the show notes. We'll be back next week with another episode. Subscribe to On the Ballot wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Corey Ucolito, and thank you for listening.